That was abrupt. Where's my nice little chord fade out? Uh, hey, it's great to see. I'll do it for you. Blum. There it was. You now got your chord fade out in case you feel like you were deprived this morning. Uh, it is awesome to see you here. And um, let me take about uh, get a couple, two minutes, three minutes up here at the top end of this sermon just to talk a little more about something. Brendan mentioned, right, the benefit of how we are better together. And that means, like, as a church, how do we connect with one another? What are some different environments for that? <clears throat> and then kind of share at the end just some thoughts about our, our community. Um, but if you're newer to Calvary or if you want to know more about Calvary and uh, what we do and how we do things, then we have something coming up this Tuesday. It'll be virtual, but it's called a Start Here class. And it's about an hour-long just dialogue conversation about our strategy, our doctrine, just the way we do ministry. For some of you, if you've been here for a while and maybe you're like, you know, I came from a church that had members. Does Calvary have members? We walk through that whole process. So if you're newer or checking out churches or trying to figure us out, we'd love to invite you to that next step. That's a great place to go. Or if you've been here a while and you want to become a uh, member, that's another great place. So April 13th, coming up this Tuesday, I think. That's Start Here class. Then on April 25th, we're doing something we've never done before. We're doing something that in the past we've loved throughout uh, the past years here to have different ways for our community as a family, as a church family to be together and to connect casually. So April 25th, it's a Sunday. First ever, here it is, ready? It is the family day at the zoo. And let me say this, it says family, but Every person, right, if you're just single, you're a family, right? So for all the people who come to Calvary, man, family day at the zoo. And we've got some space uh, over at Beardsley Zoo, the number one zoo in the nation, in case you don't know that. It's amazing. Uh, we have some space over there, and what we're going to do is just going to be a time, man, bring your family, bring yourself, uh, bring a friend, and we're going to have an opportunity for those who want to, you know, eat together, and then at the end, some popsicles and stuff, but there's ways to register. You can choose if you want to bring your lunch, don't bring your lunch. It'll be just kind of a super casual way for us to have a space to maybe meet some new people or hang out with people we already know or just have a fun outing um, and hopefully deepen some community through that. And then on May 2nd, Another uh, big community thing is we're going to have baptisms on May 2nd. That's a way for people who are newer Christians to say, man, I am part of the family of God and I'm part of a church community, right? I'm part of the community of other Christians because I'm part of the family of God. And through baptism, that's how we demonstrate that. And so if you're a newer Christian and haven't yet been baptized, we would love to present that opportunity to you. And if you're someone who's been a Christian for decades, and never had a chance to be baptized. We would love to be able to celebrate that with you. Um, and it really is a meaningful time. So that's coming up in April, uh, May 2nd. And then on April 18th, which is next Sunday, um, we're going to have a baptism class. And so we want you to be in a place where we talk about theologically what baptism is, what baptism is not. And so that'll be next Sunday. So a couple of amazing ways to get involved and take next steps into our church community, our church family. And uh, let me tell you something now about my father-in-law. I remember, and this could be like a little, uh, this may not be a direct quote, but words to the effect of, I remember when I was engaged and close to getting married, um, my father-in-law just <clears throat> grabbed 10 seconds with me and he said, hey, you know what, Peter? I've never been a father-in-law before. 
right? I've never done this before. And so in the course of being a father-in-law, he said to me, Peter, I'm sure there's going to be some things that do great. And there's going to be some things that, you know, I may not do because I've never done it, but I've never done this. So I'm, I'm going to learn with you how to do this. And I thought that was pretty uh, meaningful and that was cool, right? And so I say that to say this on behalf of myself and our pastors and our leaders, for uh, over 12 months, I don't know the exact math, maybe right at, no, over 12 months, um, I have never pastored a church that has navigated a pandemic, that has closed down and gone only virtual, and as a church and a country in that moment navigated various incidents that raised all sorts of... uh, conversations about racism and prejudice, also while navigating a political moment that was very challenging with people on different ends of things, right? I have never, nor have any of our pastors, nor have any of our elders waded through and led through that stew of the reality of life. We've never led through a pandemic in a highly contested political moment along with a situation where there's all sorts of different people groups who are experiencing different racism and prejudice with all sorts of opinions that surround all of that, okay? I ain't never done that. Good news is, ain't no pastor ever done that. But that doesn't matter because they're not the pastor here. And this is why I say that. We are a family. We are. And there's some of you that as we as leaders have tried to respond to things and think through how to do it, there's some of you, and every, there's some of you who think, man, Peter, you as a church, you as leaders, you've talked about some of that stuff actually way too much. And actually in some of your conversations, we sense, we feel that you're actually dragging us into politics. There's others of you who are the exact same part of this church family who are on the opposite side who said, Peter and leaders, you haven't even begun to talk about it nearly enough. And then between those two spectrums or wherever, there's all of you who probably have your own perceptions on that and your own thoughts about that. Um, And I just, I'm letting you know, uh, I or nobody has ever, 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 ever tried to make a political statement to endorse or not endorse a political party. And we have never, ever, ever intended to make anybody who comes here feel like we don't care for you or we're not trying to be aware of what you as a member of our body is going through. And, and I know, again, each of you have your different takes on that, and that's really what's so unique about this, right? And so in the past as a church, <clears throat> and the challenge is this too, we haven't been together to talk about this, okay? We haven't. We haven't had a chance to say, okay, I talked about something dragging politics, something not enough. What do you guys think? Let's talk. We haven't had that environment, okay? And we have been actively working to launch that environment in the right way and in the appropriate way. Because one of the things we just need to think about is the issue of how do we even talk about what we talk about when it comes to these issues, right? And engage in conversations. And so I just wanted to say that because um, we care deeply for this body. And again, our heart is not to try to make any political statement. And our heart is not to make anybody feel like we don't care about what you're going through. Um, So we just wanted to say that because we are a family. 
And as a family, we have things that come up and we need to know how to navigate through. So again, we're gonna be launching an equipping class that within that class, part of it, we'll talk about some of these issues. And I'm saying this because I know the trial of the police officer who's um, been, had charges levied against him relating to George Floyd's death. I mean, that trial is gonna wind down probably in a week or so, a couple weeks. And when it does, we'll have the opportunity again as a body of faith, as all Christians do, to think about these issues and where do we stand and how do we respond. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. So we're going to be launching a class where we talk about this uh, as part of our discipleship. And interestingly, that's not something new. I don't know, a lot of you haven't been here for a while, but when the Supreme Court case on uh, gay marriage came out, we took a couple weeks and we talked about that. We've talked about in our equipping classes cultural issues like transgenderism, cultural issues like about should Christians use marijuana if it's recreationally okay. Okay, so we've always confronted issues in our culture and environments, and so we want to work through um, talking about that and also talking about how we talk about it as a church family, okay? So lots of ways to get involved in our community and just one kind of part about us as a church family as we navigate together issues that could be divisive. You know, it's interesting, um, and I think this is right. Don't hold me to it, I could be wrong. I think that the only time that Jesus or a New Testament writer talks about politics is to make the political statement of you submit to your authorities. Okay? But there are countless number of times when New Testament writers address issues in the culture that are creating division within the church. When a cultural issue is starting to create division in any of the churches that we read about in the New Testament, Paul, or one of the New Testament writers, man, address that because he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. you're a family. I don't want you guys to be divided on this. We're going to navigate through this together, okay? So I put that out there just to kind of let you know our hearts and uh, our care for all of you, no matter what perception or what thoughts you may have on this, all right? And now you didn't come here to hear that um, necessarily, right? Uh, but you came here to hear a sermon, and I share this on the first service, um, <clears throat> and I'll share it with you. Uh, hey, I'm glad you're here, uh, but... The irony of today's sermon is that I, I just need to go like get a little chair and sit right here and look through my own sermon notes because I feel like this is for me. I mean, I looked over this last night and I'm like, man, just kind of what I'm thinking through and where God has me. Um, whoa, these, this is like my own journal entries that I just need to chew on and, and grab onto. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to process with you. Uh, some of the truths about God that I know are things God wants me to remember. And I hope that through that process, these will also be helpful, perhaps in a place in which you find yourself now, or perhaps you will at some point in your life. So let me pray and we'll move into it. Um, <clears throat> Father, I'm grateful for the body of Christ. And thank you for this particular body and all of the families and all of the people and all the individuals that are represented here and all of our hearts for you, or even those people who don't know what they think for you, Father, that we as a community, as a group, uh, are navigating our lives together uh, in conjunction with your word. And so I pray that you will continue to protect us from any division that the enemy may want to see happen, that you will keep us bound together, even as people who have different views on things or different perspectives on things, uh, that you'll just guard us, God. And I pray as we move in today's text um, that there are great truths about you 
that all of us at some point in our life are gonna need to know or need to hear. And so we're grateful that we have the Holy Spirit that indwells us to press these into our hearts and minds. And I pray that the Spirit will do that uh, in my heart today and in the hearts of, of people who are here. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, you might be able to look around, and uh, it is not as crowded in here as last week. And one reason it's not as crowded is it is spring break. You would not know that by looking out the window, but it is spring break. My wife and my kids are, they are, where are they right now? I don't know. They are somewhere near Alabama. Um, They're doing a couple last college visits, and then they're visiting different family members in the warm sunshine. There's a member of our church, a family at our church, who texted me last night because they are in the city in which we used to live. They are in Savannah, Georgia. Ah. As we speak. And they asked me, where should we go in Savannah, Georgia? And I told them, here is the barbecue restaurant at which you must eat, right? They're going to Disney or they're going somewhere. I don't know. But a lot of our people are traveling. A lot of your friends are traveling. Maybe you're going to hop in your car. Maybe you've got spring break plans. I don't know. Um, maybe many families are heading to some destination, wherever that may be this week. And as it's spring break and is families are headed to destinations. The reality for all of us in this room this morning, especially those who are are Christians, as Christians, you and I are on a journey right now. As Christians, you and I are on a journey to a destination. And the destination is not grandma's house. The destination is not Myrtle Beach. The destination is not Key West, Florida, although it might be for you guys. I don't know. But the ultimate destination on which we're on a journey is the promised final stopping place that, man, our our end of our journey is eternity with God forever. That's what we're journeying towards. What the end of, right, when the ways of our life says, you have arrived at your destination, that destination is going to be the presence of God forever. And we're navigating through that and journeying towards that. And as we go there, The reality for you and the reality for me is that God is shaping us and God's refining us and God's maturing us and God's developing us. And he often does that through different twists and different turns and different U-turns and different cul-de-sacs in our lives. And the question is, in all those moments, what lessons is God teaching us? What can we know about the God who is leading us? Well, we can answer some of those questions about what God wants us to know on our journey by continuing back in this this series that we've been in where we look at another group of people who are on a journey, right? We've been tracking and we're working through the Old Testament, putting the pieces together. And today, we're at this point where this group of people who've been studying the Israelites, they're about to take this step, first step to their journey. And their journey, their destination is this land that God has promised them, this region, right? Our destination is promised eternity with God. Their destination, right, that is part of it, but, but, but in the story, their destination is this promised land. And along the way, as we study this in Exodus 13, 14, we're going to see that God will teach them and God will teach me and God hopefully will teach you we're going to see four things about God as he leads us on the journey. Four things about God as he leads us on the journey. But before we get there, let's remember where we've been in our series so far, okay? This is review time. One of these days we're going to do the review and it's going to be like sixth grade class where this is blank and you're going to have to fill it in, okay? But 
we won't do that because there's still like, oh, the Easter, whatever. So here's where we started the journey. Genesis 1 in the beginning. Remember, what we're doing through this whole series is we're saying, how do we understand everything about before Jesus? How does all that fit together? Genesis 1, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was very good. But then we saw in Genesis 3, it went very bad very quickly. And everything changed because sin entered the equation. And the rest of the story from here through Jesus to the end of the story is about God working to fix everything and to make it right. We studied Noah, this little kind of one-off thing. And then we saw that there was still sin, there were still problems. And God looked down and he said, the way that you might remember I talked about beads on my floor, that I'm going to fix everything by picking up one bead. God said, I'm going to fix everything by starting with one man. This whole mess... Man, I'm going to start with one guy who doesn't deserve it, and I'm going to start working through him. And God made to this one man three promises. What are the three promises? <laughs> Whoa. I mean, could you be a little like, people, land, blessing. No, three promises, people, land, blessings. And these are, man, you just need to get this because this is the framework of all the rest of the Old Testament. All the rest of the Old Testament is God raising up these people, moving them into and working through them in the land to ultimately bring blessing to them and to bring blessing to all people. And so to this guy who had no kids, who had the promise of people, over time, God gives them people. We tracked these three gentlemen, this family tree. We talked Joseph. Then all of a sudden, there's all these Israelites who will now, you know, now are known as the Jewish people. But back here, they were called the Israelites, who entered this period of slavery. And this period of slavery is one little block on the thing, but this period of slavery is 400 plus years. 400 plus years. That is a lot of years. After 400 plus years of the story not being what they thought, God raised up this guy named Moses to start to try to deliver them from slavery. What we talked about the past couple of weeks, including Easter, was then God used signs working through Moses to try to get the king's attention to get the people out. We talked about nine, and then last Sunday on Easter Sunday, we talked about the final one, and the final plague, the final sign was death. Right? It was this punishment that God said, okay, if you want to avoid the punishment, you got to respond. you got to put some blood. you got to respond to what I'm telling you, and you'll be good. But for people who didn't do that, there was punishment that came. There was death that came. And so let's kind of pick up at that part of the story. And here's what we read. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, all the firstborn of the livestock. All these people didn't respond. And then look what Pharaoh does. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then Pharaoh thinks about this guy Moses, and then just look what he does. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and he said... Up, go out from among my people, right? Moses had been using all these signs to say, Pharaoh, we want to go, we want to go, we want to go. Then Pharaoh, in response to this last one, said, okay, up, go out from among my people, both of you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Okay, that's important. Go serve the Lord as you have said. 
highlight it, sticky note it, we're going to come back to it, okay? He says, okay, essentially saying, look, you told me you got some stuff to do, you go on and start getting it. Take your flocks and your herds as you, as you have said and be gone and bless me. He's like, you know what? You told me you got to get, you told me you got some stuff, you told me you want to go, go, go. Then what happened? Well, what happened is the people went. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. Ah, I just remembered what it is. The first time I read Ramses in the first service, I'm like, there's some movie, something about Ramses. It's Nacho Libre. That's what it is. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. One little thing, let me tell you if you are really enjoying this series and you're doing more reading or if in other years you come across like the History Channel talking about that, this word here, the Hebrew word that's translated thousand is the word elif, elif. Interestingly, elif throughout the Old Testament has about four or five different ways that it's translated. And some of the different translations point to numbers that are different than thousand, okay? In this case, it seems that thousand is a reasonable one, which would bring to 600,000, but there are other times where the words like 600, uh, it, it refers to military units, like 600 units. And so you may sometimes hear people talking about the numbers of this and whether it was 600,000, whether it was less, and a lot of that comes from the translation of that word, okay? Just throwing that out there in case you come across it. So first observation about that, but now let's talk about Ramses to Succoth. We have a map. Let's pop the map up there. Now, when we start talking about a lot of these places, uh, it's hard for scholars today to, to, to pinpoint exactly where some of them, particularly later in the chapters, will be. But we do know where Ramses is. That is right there, okay? And then it tells us that they went from Ramses to Succoth. This is a reasonable guess about where probably Succoth might have been, okay? But it seems like reasonably is here. So Ramses to Succoth. Now, let me tell you, here's where the people are going to end up. They're going to end up up here in Canaan, okay? This is modern-day Israel. Here's the Dead Sea. Canaan, this is the promised land. This is their promised destination. They are going to go from Succoth to Canaan. Now, if you were about to make that road trip, if you were about to get in your car or about to get in your camel caravan and you're thinking to yourself, I don't even need my ways because like I know how to get there, right? What is the most direct, reasonable, makes sense way to get from Succoth to Canaan? Here's what it is in case you're directionally challenged. Start in Succoth and then you kind of go that way, whoop. Right? You, you, you probably like maybe would cut straight across, but there was this little path. You can't see it so good here, but there's this little like highway known as the Way of the Philistines. So the, the, the easiest way is, man, you cruise up here, you, you border the uh, southern end of the Mediterranean Sea, put on a little copper tone sunscreen, get a little tan, and then you keep cruising up to the way of Canaan. That is the most direct route. That is the route that makes sense. That is the route that would, you would think you would go. The question is this, is that the way that God leads them? Is that the way that God leads them? Well, let's look as the story continues. 
When Pharaoh let the people of God go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. And then we have a little excerpt here. But instead, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Equipped for battle is an interesting term we'll talk about again later. This does not mean that they had like Uzis, okay? This means that they went out, most likely means they went out marching orderly. So like it wasn't just chaos. It was an orderly marching of the people in lines and units and groups. It does not mean that they had like laser beams and lightsabers, okay? But that's not the point. The point is that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, but led them away by the land of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. He did not take them up that way. In fact, what he did is he took them the completely opposite way. He took them this way. And it's like, if you were headed that way and you knew geography, your ways and GPS would be like, recalculating, recalculating. Because that way doesn't make sense. That way's not the way that we would go. That way seems confusing and wrong and longer and indirect. And God intentionally leads them in a direction in their journey that doesn't make sense. And maybe, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe there's some place that you wanted to be. Or there's some place you sense God's leading you. But God isn't leading you the way that you would want to go to get there. In fact, God's leading you this way that's like seems completely opposite and is windy and is longer and is inefficient and isn't the way that you want to go. Because you think there's one way, but he's taking you a completely different direction. And sometimes that can be hard. Because <clears throat> you're like, well, God, what are you doing? Recalculating, recalculating. Why might God take you and me sometimes on such ways? Why might he sometimes take us in our lives on a way that seems completely opposite of what we want? Well, maybe we can learn something by thinking about why he took them these people in that way. Let's go to the part of the verse that we didn't read the first time. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, here's the reason. God's explaining why he's brought them the different way. God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. The, the Philistines were this, this armed group of people and they were pretty proficient in their battle. In fact, they'd made some incursions into Egypt trying to uh, attack Egypt. And to do that, to attack Egypt, you'd have to be pretty, pretty good warriors. And here's what God knew. Could God have just wiped the Philistines out and made it easy for the Israelites? He, of course he could have. But what God knew in his sovereignty is, okay, I'm not gonna do that yet. I'm not gonna judge the people. I'm not gonna go try to wipe out the Philistines yet. And so God knew <clears throat> that if this group of people who have known nothing but slavery their whole lives, who were essentially peasants with, yeah, they got some bling from the Egyptians, but man, they, they were now starting this trek through the desert. And they don't have swords, they don't have stuff. And what God knew is this, that those people, for the heart of those people, 
that at the very first thing they encountered or something they encountered on that journey was this huge battle off the start where he wasn't gonna fight for them because that wasn't part of his sovereignty. He knew that, man, that would be too much for them. He knew that emotionally they weren't ready for that. Spiritually, they weren't ready for that. Their limited perspectives and their fearful hearts weren't in a place to navigate that at this moment in the journey. And so in kindness, in kindness, what he did is he took them a different way that may not seem to make sense, but actually spared them from the hardship that they would have encountered if they went in the way that they thought they should go. He leads them on a longer path but ultimately that's the better path for them. And the reason God did that then and the reason that God does that sometimes now is because of this principle that God sometimes for our own good leads us on paths that we don't think make sense. Because sometimes the paths that we think make sense we don't know the whole story. We, we're not sovereign. We're not fortune tellers. We don't know the future. We have no idea what lies on the path that we think we should go on, that we think makes sense. And sometimes in the story, the path that we wish God had taken us down may be the path that had something so hard on it that God in his kindness has kept us from it. And God sometimes, for our own good, leads us in paths that we don't think make sense. And as they move down this path in the apparent wrong direction, what is God doing? Well, we see at the next verse, a little bit later on, we read this about what God's doing. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now, as I studied this, I learned that, man, I, I always thought that these were two different little some scientifically done thing by God, two different cloud appearances, right? But actually, it's just one. So you study it, there's just one cloud that somehow through God working through nature and working divinely, you know, it's a pillar of cloud in the day and then at night it appears. But the point of all this is this, that the Lord went before them. What God was doing was giving them this supernatural reminder and encouragement that as you're going down this path that isn't the path that you thought you'd be on, that maybe you don't understand, what I just want to give you encouragement and remind you along is that I'm with you. And I'm leading you. And go back one more slide real quick, because I love this last line. It says, and God did not depart, the cloud did not depart from before the people. Here's what God's showing them and showing us. That God is present with us. God this morning is present with you. God is in it with you. God is leading you. God is ahead of you. And I don't know where you are on your journey. 
I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you struggled with two weeks ago. I don't know what you're going to challenges you'll face in two weeks, but would it be helpful and encouraging you to know that as you struggle through that and walk through that, that God is there with you? If you really were able to believe it and you really were able to grasp it and you really were able through the work of the Spirit just to rest in it, what difference would that make? What encouragement could that bring? What peace could it offer to you? That in that space and in that place, God is present with you. As the Israelites are on this journey with God leading them, God there protecting them from hardships right, for their good, what's Pharaoh doing? What's old boy up to, right? Well, we see what Pharaoh's doing. It's kind of like that old cartoon on Saturday mornings, which was the best cartoon ever that some of you won't know about, but you're missing out, right? It was the superheroes. It was the Hall of Justice. And it had this little thing. Every Meanwhile, back at the Halls of Justice, well, as we're in the story and the Israelites are moving around, what's going on? Well, meanwhile, back in the halls of Egypt, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we've done that we've let Israel go from us? When the king of Israel was told that the people have fled. Now, for, we just got to stop on that because it's kind of like, whoa, hold on, time out. Like, Pharaoh, you were the dude who let them go. <laughs> like, you were the guy who told them to go. So, like, it seems like you're surprised by that. And this has to do with what I told you to remember earlier on. When Moses first came to Pharaoh, when this whole thing started, what he said to Pharaoh was this, and we don't need to analyze, did he lie, should he not have lied? That doesn't, it, that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is what he said to Pharaoh when he first came is, Pharaoh, hey, we want to go worship our God for three days in the desert. Give us three days off, we're going to go to the desert, worship God, and we'll come back. And so you remember that verse when Pharaoh then let them go. He said, go and do as you have said. What you have said you have to do, go do. In other words, what Pharaoh said in that moment most likely is, okay, Moses, you you told me that you want to worship God for three days. You brought all this stuff upon our country. Okay, fine. Go three days. You got your time off, and then you're going to come back. It's been about six days now. And now Pharaoh's being told like, uh, Pharaoh, uh, they ain't coming back. In fact, they're going further away. And Pharaoh's like, no, right? And look what he says. What have we done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Here's what Pharaoh's doing. He's like, I can't let them go. I can't let them go because I need their slave labor. Because at this point, in many ways, their economy, their industry, everything was built upon the labor of these slaves. And Pharaoh needs them to keep the infrastructure going and the economy going and the building projects going. Pharaoh needs them back. He needs them back alive. And he doesn't want them to go off and join the Philistines or other people to attack him. He just wants them back. Okay, And so what does Pharaoh do in that moment? So he made ready his chariot and he took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. We've heard the word chariots a few times. Chariots in this day, I'm not even smart enough to know what like the best bomber is, the best jet anymore. I know that what Maverick flew in Top Gun was pretty awesome. Okay, This Man, this is like the most high-tech, laser-guided, drone-enforced 
technology weaponry at that time. And Pharaoh is loading up this advanced weaponry from an empire that's been around for thousands of years. And they've been around for thousands of years because these dudes know how to battle, all right? And he's getting this already because he's going out not to wipe them out, but to bring them back. And he needs to corral them. And he needs the best fighters and the people to corral to bring them back to Egypt, okay? So he takes off. What's the next thing we read about in the story? The Egyptians pursued them and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, they overtook them and camped at the sea by Peharabath in front of Belzephon. Nobody knows where that is. Pharaoh's horses and his army overtook them, them being the Israelites, and the Israelites were camping out. The Israelites had a little campfire. And the Israelites looked up and all of a sudden, that one of the well, most well-trained armies in the world was coming towards them. And they've been nothing but slaves. And what happens in that moment? What did they do when they saw <clears throat> this army? When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Now, this part of the story so far, they do something good. They, people of Israel cried out to the Lord, but that line right there, they feared greatly. Have you ever felt that? <clears throat> fear. Fear. And fear when you felt it, it can be paralyzing. It can grip you. I'm in this little box on the stage that I'm not supposed to walk outside of because the camera can't get me anymore. But, but you know what fear does? The box that it puts us in, man, it, it's a lot smaller than that green box. It, it just surrounds us. And we're trapped in it. And it's stifling and it's paralyzing and it's gripping <clears throat> and then sometimes what happens is man we, we, we don't know how to get out of it i mean we know certain things right but but sometimes we're so paralyzed by it even truths that we know even some truths that i'm going to share in a few minutes we know it but our fear is keeping us from even being able to escape the fear to believe it have you ever been there i've been there and I'm just saying it, not, I've, I've never tried to make it seem like I'm the best pastor. I've never claimed to be. I'm just a normal guy with normal emotions. They're sometimes hard, and sometimes that emotion is fear. And if I'm like you and you're like me, we get in that place where we're gripped, and our fear keeps us from even moving out of it. And in those moments, I love what Brandon said, we are better together. And in those moments, what all of us need is somebody to get up there on the ledge with us and say, dude, dude, let me speak truth to you. Don't let the fear block you from knowing what is true. We all need somebody in our lives to help us in those moments. Nudge us. Because the fear that is great is the fear that keeps us from even being able to nudge ourselves off of it sometimes. And that's why as a body, we are better together. 
these <clears throat> Jewish people felt this fear and then their fear did to them what fear probably does to you, what I know fear does to me. Three things they got wrong in this story. They said to Moses, right, fearing greatly. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. You actually, well, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. First thing these guys are doing in their fear is they're, they're redefining the past. They're looking back to a moment in the past that was bad. But they're like, well, I guess it would have been better for us to still be here because here. No, it wouldn't have been better for you to be there. That wasn't good. They're redefining the past. But the second thing that they're doing. Is it because you've taken us away to die? We are going to, right? Where is it? What have you done? We're in better to serve Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. There's this circumstance that is surrounding them, this thing in front of them. And in their fear, you know what they're doing? They're jumping to the worst case scenario. We're going to die. <clears throat> We're going to die. No. <laughs> Pharaoh wasn't coming to kill you. He's coming to bring you back, right? Not good, but not worst case. But in their fear, they're jumping to the worst case scenario. You know what I do in my fear? <clears throat> Worst case scenario. I mean, I don't just jump there. I like plummet there. I'm like out of the airplane and I don't have a parachute that nicely like, ooh, worst case scenario. I mean, it's like Fortnite when you're diving down. No parachute, just skydive free falling quickly to worst case scenario. And I say that not just because I do that, but because maybe some of us do that. Fear comes. Fear. We can't shake it. Can't get out of it. Worst case scenario, and then we're stuck there. And it's really, really interesting, one other thing that's nowhere in this conversation, nowhere in their thinking is there any possibility that maybe God can even show up. Nowhere. They completely seem to forget that God can rescue them. This is what fear did to them. This is what fear does to me. And this is what fear can do to you. So what, what do we do, right? How do we get our thinking straight? Again, the hard thing about fearing greatly is sometimes you can't even like, I don't even, okay, so, so here are kind of some steps, right? Obviously, we need to stop focusing on the circumstance. We need to focus on God. And we, like I said, we need people there who can nudge us. I don't mean just nudge. I mean like shake us out of the box of fear and try to push us there and be like, bro, I am here and I'm speaking truth to you and listen to my truth instead of the lies of fear. Okay, that helps shake us there. And that's what Moses is gonna try to do for these people. Here's what Moses says to them next, right? And Moses said to the people, and between these lines, these attributes of God, Moses says to the people, fear not. 
easier said than done. Let's just own that, right? Wouldn't it be nice if we were like freaked out about something? And I mean freaked out. And you could just say to yourself, well, I'm not going to fear. Boom. It's not easy to do. We need God's help to get here. But ultimately, we got to figure out how to get there by absolute dependence on God. And maybe sometimes the reason God has me in moments of fear and moments of fear for you is because God is trying to break us of our self-reliance. And God is trying to teach you. And God is trying to teach me. Yeah, guess what? You're not strong enough, good enough, powerful enough to navigate this without me. And maybe sometimes we forget that. And so God refines us by putting us into places where it's like, God, I know I'm not supposed to fear, but if you don't show up, like literally, God, if you don't show up, me just reading this Bible verse ain't going to do it. Maybe that's exactly where God needs us. Moses says to them, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. I love what's between some of these lines here. This idea of fear not, and don't, don't flip the last point yet. I'll, I'll cue you for it. The, the thing about fear not is saying like, look, Fear not, because God is the one who can dispel the fear. God is the one who can take away the fear. And then I, this, so stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Look, God can take it away. And so what God is inviting the people to do here and he invites us to do is, look, stand firm. Stand firm. Be silent. God is inviting them to say, I know you're fearing greatly. Trust me. Trust me. Wait on me. Grasp that you can't do it on your own. I got you there. Get to that place in your own heart. And then you're going to see the salvation of the Lord. The salvation of the Lord, the way we always wanted to end. No, we talked about that a lot, but, but he is going to come. Here's the point that we see from that. That God is a dispeller of fear, a deliverer in distress, and he invites us to trust him. This morning for you and for me, God is a dispeller of fear, a deliverer of distrust, and he invites us to trust him, and sometimes on your own and by yourself, we can't do this. And that's why God has put us in the body of Christ, for people to be with us who is going to say, bro, look, I'm just here, I'm just behind you, I'm just going to nudge you into this. I'm just going to push you into this. I'm going to support you when you don't believe this, and I'm going to speak it to you until you can believe it. We need each other because my fear, I don't, I can't get there. I eventually get there, but right away, nope, I'm like, nope, gonna die. (laughs) Seriously, I'm not kidding. I wish, 
I was. And I wish there was a switch. Wouldn't a switch be nice? Okay, don't fear. Click. Got to nudge each other as part of a body. And so, what does God do then? Well, the, the, you can read it. When you go home, you're going to have a few hours before the Masters kicks off the coverage. So, before you watch golf all afternoon or whatever you're going to watch, uh, Exodus 14, uh, chapter 14, 15 to 31, here's the cliff notes of it. Here's the sparks notes of it, right? Big thing behind them, the sea, army coming towards them, and here's what happens. Uh, God parts the sea. He uses clouds to block the Egyptians so they can't see what's going on. The Israelites walk through it. Then the clouds depart. Then the Egyptians and their chariots are like, man, we're going to go get those dudes now if they're running, right? They, they go into the sea to try to bring them back again, but they don't go into the sea. It's muddy. The, the, the chariot wheels get stuck. The Egyptians start panicking. And then in some miraculous way, God causes the waters to come back over the Egyptian army and he wipes them out. The Egyptians, I mean the Israelites, were trapped. They can't go forward because they can't outrun the chariots. The chariots are drawn by horses. They can't outrun that way. <clears throat> and they look behind them. They're like, well, big old ocean, big old lake. I can't go through that. A sea that was a huge obstacle and challenge behind them, and yet... The thing that they looked back and seen as the obstacle and the challenge was the very thing, the very means that God was going to use to deliver them and to rescue them. And, and the way that God had planned to rescue them was something that had never even shown up on their radar. In this place, thinking, oh, this will be easy. God's going to part the water. I'm going to walk through. Beep. Easy. To... It didn't even show up in the radar. All that showed up was, I'm trapped. I'm trapped. But the thing that they saw as the obstacle was the very thing that God was going to use as the means to deliver them. Here's, right, he's, he's going to rescue them not by having them avoid the obstacle, but by having them walk through the obstacle. That was his deliverance. Not avoid it. Walk through it. Here's the point. Sometimes God's path of an obstacle requires us to go through the obstacle. Right? The old line, sometimes the only way out is through. And sometimes God's path out of an obstacle requires us to go through the obstacle. And I hate that. I like the avoiding concept. Right? Hey, can I take the, can I sub out my fries for a baked potato? God, can I sub out the going through it? Actually, I want the avoiding it. Is that like a $2 upcharge or what? I don't want to go through it. Look, I'm just telling you the thing that I've realized about myself the past several days is um, two things. <clears throat> you, you know, this little gold wedding ring didn't look like this originally. It looks like this because it's gone through a lot of heat and fire. And there's a reason in the Bible that talks about God refines us like a refiner's fire. And in my life and your life, God is daily smashing our idols, just like kaplow. Sometimes to splash them, smash them, we don't get to avoid, we go through, but the means of going through is the way that he rescues us. And this morning, the very thing that maybe you feel boxed in, 
as I invite the worship team to come up, the very thing that you feel like is the obstacle that you're not going to be able to get through, that you just want God to take away, it may be the very thing that he's going to make you walk through as he rescues you from. He's going to rescue you from it by making you go through it, and he's going to make you go through it in order to rescue you from it. Nothing we can do about it because we're not sovereign. We're not God, and we don't know what's best because what we think's best might have those Philistines up there that are going to discourage us in ways that this doesn't even hold a light to. And so we trust him. We remind ourselves truths about him. I would encourage you, if you haven't written these down or take pictures of these points, none of these truths have anything to do with Peter Smith. But they are truths about God. And truths about God can give encouragement to me and encouragement to you. And I would encourage you to have some record of this so that someday when that moment comes, you have something to go back to from how God worked a long time ago about how he still works today. And don't do it alone. Because I'm not strong enough. And you're not strong enough. But together, we can give strength to each other when we're weak. And we can remind ourselves that he who waits upon the Lord shall renew his strength. Father, thank you for our reminders about you. And the reality is that for all of us, um, we are limited, finite humans but we know that we have a Holy Spirit that supernaturally draws us to you and brings encouragement. And so for all of us who are in different places in our journey today, Father, will you just press these realities into our mind? You're a God of peace, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will work and enable some of us to be still and to know that you're a God and that rest will come from that. Thank you that we can pray to you. Thank you that you are our Father who loves us. And thank you that you've given us the gift of this day. Amen.